0: So we have been working through Exodus, and as you note, this morning we're not in Exodus. We've hit pause on that for the harvest, but we'll be back there next week. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom And he called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. And as as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment, than for that town." Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this morning.
1: Well, let me thank John for his welcome to uh, Hill Street this morning. I've got to know John because of my involvement in Northern Ireland Ministry Assembly, and he's on the steering group for uh, that uh, organization and we have our ministry assembly coming up next month but this part of the world has a, a very special place in my heart because I ministered in Waringstown just out the road for 11 years and served for five as the clerk of the Armagh Presbytery and uh, back in the days of yore, Drew dreamer one of the previous ministers here and I exchanged pulpits uh, the Sunday after Christmas usually uh, and uh, Nigel McCulloch married to Katrina while well, my first assistant Gary Miller is his brother-in-law so we had that connection and of course Nigel ministered in Ballygraney which was just out the road from Bangor where we were for 25 and a half years so it's very good for me to come back here Uh, to this part of the world and to be in such a vibrant congregation as Hill Street is. So thank you for the invitation to come and be part of the Harvest Service this morning. Let me encourage you to take your Bible, to turn to the passage from which John read in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 9. I think the page number in the church Bibles is 974, and as you find that, Let's just pause and pray together as we come to the word of God. Our gracious God and loving Father, we bow humbly in your presence. May your written word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our chief concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The king had just died. He had reigned for 52 years and many of his subjects had not known any other monarch. Following his death, a young man went to church. We don't know how exactly he came to be there or what he'd come to do. But on that day, in that place, he was given a vision of God such as he had never had before. The young man's name was Isaiah. The king who had died was Uzziah. And in the temple in Jerusalem, Isaiah received a commission from God. It began with a vision of God's majesty as he was given a glimpse of the glory of the Lord which filled the temple. It was so overwhelming it caused him to cry out, woe is me for I am undone. But the vision then continued with an experience of God's mercy as one of the heavenly beings. The seraphim flew to him with a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from off the altar. With it he touched Isaiah's lips and he said, Behold, this has touched you. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. But that wasn't the end of it, because Isaiah then heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? To which Isaiah responded, Here am I. Send me. I wonder what you would have said had you been there in the temple that day. I fear I might have looked across the aisle and said, Here am I send him. Because all too often, that's my reaction when it comes to the mission of Jesus, because the mission of Jesus in this world can be hard. The mission of Jesus can be dangerous. You can get hurt in the mission of Jesus. You might even get killed. But the mission of Jesus isn't an option for those of us who are his followers. And as we come this morning to this passage from the Gospel of Matthew, I want to make four observations about how Jesus sets about sending his disciples out on mission to proclaim what Matthew calls the Gospel of the Kingdom. First of all, what Jesus saw. There was something unique about Jesus' power to see, because Jesus could see right into people's lives. Jesus saw their true condition. Jesus saw their deepest needs. And here we're told in verse 36 that when Jesus saw the crowds, he saw them as those who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's a description which fits the lives of many people today, because life for a lot of people is just that. It's a rat race. It's a pressure cooker. It's going from one crisis to the next, and the stress and strain is such that they feel constantly harassed. But they're not just harassed, they are helpless. They're like a skydiver in free fall. There he is, arms and legs spread out, descending from the sky. The only problem with this particular skydiver is he has no parachute. His freedom, therefore, is illusory because he is enslaved to the law of gravity. And whatever he might like to think, he is unable to do anything about it. He's helpless because he cannot defy gravity and it will kill him in the end. And that's the position of every person who lives on this planet. Only it's much worse than that because we are subject not only to the force of gravity but to the power of sin and the bondage of death. And in and of ourselves we are as helpless to do anything about it as the skydiver without a parachute. Harassed. Helpless. And of course Christless because that was what was in the mind of Jesus. When he saw these people as sheep without a shepherd, the language calls to mind a whole array of Old Testament passages in which either God or God's promised Messiah is the compassionate shepherd who will come to lead, feed, and protect God's people. Listen to these words from the prophet Ezekiel as he speaks the word of the Lord who says concerning his people, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them, I the Lord have spoken. Matthew himself, in his account of the visit of the Magi who came seeking the one who was to be born king of the Jews, quotes from the prophet Micah, who says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And again, in connection with his death, Jesus cites the words of the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 13, verse 7, when he says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then, of course, there is Jesus' own description of himself in the Gospel of John, when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And when Jesus saw the crowds as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, the implication is that he is the shepherd they need. The shepherd who was promised in the Old Testament and the shepherd who is now present here in their midst. And the point that Matthew's making as he records this scene is that Jesus wants his disciples to see people in the way that he did. An estimated 50,000 children die each year in Yemen from hunger-related diseases. And if I was to bring a child from Yemen into the pulpit just now, a child who was malnourished and emaciated and barely able to stand, I don't think there'd be any of us here who, having seen the child with our own eyes, would want to do something to help. But Jesus wasn't looking here at a starving child. There were no doubt poor widows and hungry orphans in the crowd that day, but Jesus, as he looked out over the multitude, was looking at the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. Jesus was looking at the checkout assistants and the bank cashiers. Jesus was looking at the religious Pharisees and the irreligious tax collectors. Jesus was looking at people who on the surface had no obvious need. But he still saw them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Those of you who are as old as me might remember the words of the Simon and Garfunkel song, which begins, Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never heard, no one dared disturb the sound of silence. What do you see as you walk down the street or through the shopping center? What do you see when you see people disembarking from a bus or a train? What do you see when you're in the queue waiting to check in for your flight? Do you see the people there through the eyes of Jesus harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? What Jesus saw... But secondly, we need to notice what Jesus felt. Verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The Greek word which Matthew uses is a word which speaks of something that affects you so profoundly that you feel it in the very depths of your being. And that's what Jesus experienced when he saw the Christ. He felt in his body and in his soul something that made him pulsate with concern for these people who were like sheep without a shepherd. On the 3rd of September 1878, an excursion steamer called the Princess Alice, with 800 passengers on board, sailed down the River Thames on what was billed as a moonlight trip to Gravesend and back. The steamer was making its way back around 7.40 in the evening and was within sight of the North Woolwich Pier where many of the passengers were due to disembark when it collided with a freighter called the Bywell Castle. The Princess Alice was struck on the starboard side, it split in two and sank within the space of four minutes. An estimated 640 people lost their lives and the sinking of the Princess Alice remains the highest ever loss of civilian casualties in UK waters. There were two ferrymen who were docking their boats that night One of them saw the collision and heard the screams of the drowning, but it had been a long day. He was tired, and so he just went home. But the other one got back into the boat and rowed out to those who were struggling in the water and rescued as many as he could. When the inquiry took place, the two ferrymen were questioned as to what they had seen and heard that night. The coroner said to the first ferryman, you saw the collision? Yes. You heard the screams? Yes. What did you do? Nothing, he said. I just went home. The coroner was so astounded, he looked at him and he said, are you an Englishman? Because he couldn't believe a true Englishman would allow his fellow countrymen to perish like that without doing something to save them. The other ferryman was asked the same questions and he said that when he had seen the collision and heard the screams, he got into his boat. He rowed with all his might to the drowning passengers. He got in as many as he could, but there were others still in the water. And as he rowed back to the shore, he could hear them shouting, Please, sir, wait for me. And such was the pain in his heart, he said. He began to cry, oh God, oh God, for a bigger boat. Now we hear a story like that, we say to ourselves, I would be that ferryman who went out to help. I wouldn't be the one who just went home. And that may well be true in those extreme circumstances. But in the course of my everyday life, I have to admit that there are too many times when I see the need, but I'm not moved by it in the way that Jesus was when he saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them what Jesus saw, what Jesus felt. And thirdly, what Jesus said, verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask or better, pray and pray earnestly, the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field." The metaphor now changes from a flock of sheep to a field of grain and what Jesus is saying here is that there are fields of people who are ready and waiting to be harvested. That's why mission agencies use the term mission field and what those mission fields need are workers who will go out and bring in the harvest. How then are we to proceed Should we begin with training sessions to mobilize people for mission? Should we develop a recruitment strategy to attract more candidates into missionary service? Should we launch an appeal for funds to support these workers? At some point or other, all of those may be good steps to take. We need to recruit, we need to train, we need to support. But for Jesus, these are secondary steps and are not to be undertaken until considerable energy is poured into the first step. And that first step is to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest field. And so Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. That command's rather strange, don't you think? Is it not strange that Jesus should tell the farmhands, the disciples, to go to the farm owner and beg him to send out workers into his harvest? Does Jesus think the owner of the farm doesn't know there's a shortage? I don't think so. Or does Jesus think the owner of the farm doesn't really care about the harvest? I don't think so. Why then tell the farmhands to beg the farm owner to send more workers to bring in the harvest? I can think of only one answer to that question, and it is this, that it is God's chosen way before he does a great work to pour out a spirit of supplication upon his people so that they begin to plead for the work. And we must plead for the work because the harvest that we are sent to reap is an impossible task. Not just because of the sheer numbers involved, but because this is a harvest of souls. This is a work that involves people being delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. This is a work which involves those who are dead in their trespasses and sins being made alive in Christ. And that is something only God can do. And we must therefore entreat him to work. That doesn't mean that prayer becomes a substitute for the work. But it does mean that the work will not be done without prayer. And so Jesus commands his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest field. Yet this is our Achilles' heel, is it not? Churches and Christian people will do almost anything, it seems, but pray. They will hold conferences. They will publish magazines. They will run courses. They will raise money. They will organize family fun days. They will talk endlessly about church affairs, but they will not pray. And I am conscious, even as I say these things, there are three fingers pointing back at me. But all new life begins, continues, and is ended in prayer because that is how God has ordained it. What Jesus saw, what Jesus felt, what Jesus said, and fourthly, what Jesus did. Now, there are two parts to what Jesus did. The first part is in verse 1 of chapter 10, where he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out unclean spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then the second part is in verse 5, where we're told these 12 Jesus sent out. And we need to notice carefully what's being said here. Notice again, verse 1, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority to do the things that he was doing. And verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent out. And it's important for us to see that because the question is sometimes raised as to whether what happened then should also happen now. Should we expect to raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons, heal every disease and affliction? The answer is no. Because what we learn from the New Testament as a whole is that these kind of miracles are, by and large, restricted to the apostles of Jesus. And even among the apostles, they are few and far between. And so what we are dealing with here is something that is exceptional rather than normative. Now, that's not to deny the miraculous. But it is to recognize that this authority was given at this time by Jesus to his apostles and not to us. But having put that particular caveat in place in relation to these 12, to whom Jesus gave something of his own power and authority, I want to suggest that these verses also contain a number of principles about the mission of Christ which are applicable to all the followers of Jesus and not just the 12 disciples. And the first of these principles is to start where you are. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. (laughs) Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Does this mean Jesus was prejudiced against Gentiles and Samaritans? Not at all. Because back in chapter 8, Matthew tells us of how Jesus commended a Roman centurion for his faith and healed his servant. And he was not a Jew. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus sits down at a well to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. He also told a parable in which he deliberately included a Samaritan as the example of neighbor love. And at the end of his ministry, when he gave his disciples what we now call the Great Commission, he told them they were to go and to make disciples of all nations or all people. So what was Jesus saying at this point when he instructed his disciples not to go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? He's telling them to start where they are. Yes, one day they will go beyond the borders of Galilee and they will be his witnesses not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. But for now, they are to begin where they are. One day in school, an eight-year-old boy named Brian heard the story of St. Simeon, the Stylite. Simeon was a monk who lived in Syria in the fifth century, and he achieved notoriety when he constructed a small platform at the top of a pillar where he decided he would spend the remainder of his days. That's the way he lived, according to tradition, for 37 years. He would pray. He would read. He would preach. But he did it all from the top of his pillar, and he was given the name Simeon the Stylite because the Greek word stele means pillar. Little eight-year-old Brian was fascinated by the story of Simeon the Stylite, and he decided he would become a saint just like Simeon. And so he got a kitchen chair one morning after breakfast, and he set it on top of the kitchen table. He then climbed up onto the chair where he could almost touch the ceiling. And he sat there with his Bible open, just like Simeon. But it was all shattered when his mother came into the kitchen. Brian, she shouted, what on earth are you doing up there? Get down this minute. Reluctantly, Brian climbed down. And as he went back to his room, His mother heard him muttering under his breath, you can't even become a saint in your own house. (laughs) Brian didn't know it, but he had hit the nail on the head. Because that is the hardest place to be a saint, isn't it? In your own house, with your wife, with your husband, with your children. With your parents, with your brothers, with your sister. It's the hardest place to be a saint with people who know us better than anyone else. But Jesus said that's where Christian mission begins. You start where you are. And that's what he instructed his disciples to do here go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But secondly, give what you have received. Look at verse 7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And the principle Jesus is laying down here is that the gospel must be offered without price. Every disciple of Jesus is a recipient of grace and spiritual treasures are not to be bought and sold. And those of us who are involved in what is often described as full-time ministry are not to set a rate for every hour of sermon preparation or every session of pastoral counseling. That may be the way it works with an accountant or a barrister. But it's not to be the way of the gospel worker. Grace is always free. And gospel ministry, though it may be paid, must never be used for personal financial gain. But there's something else here I think that we mustn't miss. And that is you can't give what you haven't received. If you don't know Christ, you can't share Christ. If you've never received Christ, then you can't offer him to others. You can't give what you don't have. Just glance back to Matthew 9, verse 27, where Matthew records the healing of two blind men. These two men had followed Jesus, crying out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus then says to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? That is give them back their sight. They said, yes, Lord. He then touched their eyes and suddenly they could see. But Jesus then gave them strict instructions not to tell anyone. So what did they do? Verse 31, they went out and spread the news about him over all that region. Because that's what you do when you've experienced the grace and power of Jesus in your life. Is it not? And that's the second principle. It's to give what you have received. And here's the third one. Take only what you need. Verse 9, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Now, this again touches on the issue of how ministry and mission are to be financed. And here in the mission of the twelve, and again in the mission of the seventy-two, in Luke's gospel, those who are sent out go in faith. They don't take money. They don't take food. They don't take extra clothes or extra shoes. Instead, they look to others to support them and to provide them with food and lodgings. But there's a deeper principle behind this, I think, and that is that God's people are to have A pilgrim mindset. Because they are on a journey to what John Bunyan described as the celestial city, the new Jerusalem, the city whose designer and builder is God. And on that journey, as pilgrim people, we must learn to travel light. In 1733, Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan pastor and theologian in New England, preached a sermon which he called the Christian Pilgrim. And in it he says that true disciples of Jesus should desire heaven more than the comforts and enjoyments of this life. Our hearts, he says, ought to be loose to these things as that of a man on a journey that we may as cheerfully part with them whenever God calls. John Piper puts it like this. He says, God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized and uneducated and unhoused and unfed millions. The problem is not with earning a lot. The problem is the constant accumulation of luxuries that are soon felt to be needs. If you want to be a conduit for God's grace, you don't have to be lined with gold. Copper will do. And it may well be we don't even need copper. Start where you are. Give what you've received. Take only what you need. And fourthly, look for the seeker. Look at verse 11 of chapter 10. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. The context here is one of Middle Eastern hospitality, where it was customary to offer a place to stay to those who were passing through a village or a town. But here the disciples are to look carefully for the right person, and in particular they're to look for the person who is open to their message and to their ministry, and that's where they're to lodge. In 1999, we had the late John Chapman come to Hamilton Road in Bangor, all the way from Australia, to head up an evangelistic outreach which we called Beyond Belief. John Chapman was an exceptionally gifted evangelist. He had the ability to engage in conversation with just about anyone. After one of his talks, I noticed a man going up to him and talking to him at some length. I was intrigued because I would not have expected this man to do that. And so I said to Chapo afterwards, I see you were talking to so-and-so giving the man's name. Yes, he said. I was. He's just a time waster. He must have noticed the look of consternation in my face. Oh, don't be concerned, he says. I get them all the time. They like to talk, but they've no interest in what they've heard. They're just time wasters. I'll still talk to them. But I'm looking for the ones who are genuinely seeking Jesus. At the time, I thought that was a hard thing to say. But I think that may be what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Look for the seeker. Invest in the interested. Plant your seed in the lives of those who will receive it. And that brings us, of course, to the last principle. And that is to leave the outcome to God. Verse 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Pious Jews leaving Gentile territory often shook the dust of the pagan territory from their clothes and from their feet, symbolizing their rejection of all that was seen to be pagan. But Jesus now applies this custom to Jewish homes and towns. Because in rejecting the words of Jesus as spoken through his messengers, they have put themselves in the place of judgment. And this judgment theme becomes even more explicit in verse 15 of chapter 10, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that time. Sodom and Gomorrah, as you will know from your Old Testament, suffered catastrophic judgment On account of their sin. But on the final day, as much as Sodom and Gomorrah will be condemned, the homes and the towns that rejected Jesus and his messengers will face an even more fearsome judgment. The mission of Jesus then results in a divided response. There will be those who reject Christ just as there will be those who receive Christ. And it's not for us to determine which side of that great divide someone will end up on. But what we do need to be clear about is that there's no middle ground here. No third way. One road leads to life. The other road leads to destruction. Bishop J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew puts it like this. He says... This is a doctrine fearfully overlooked and one that deserves serious consideration. Men are sadly apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ, and by and by they will find themselves in hell. And I need to warn you that if you have no living experience of Christ, if he is not dwelling in your heart by faith, you are in mortal danger. Because on the day that you pass from time into eternity, you will have forfeited your soul. The author Robert Louis Stevenson when he was a boy of 12 was standing one night the upstairs window of his bedroom looking down into the street below. There he saw a man lighting gas lamps in the street. His governess came into the room and asked the young Stevenson what he was doing. He replied, I am watching a man Cut holes in the darkness. I am watching a man cut holes in the darkness. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus sends us out from here to do. As we take his message to the world, we are to cut holes in the darkness starting where we are giving what we've received taking only what we need looking for the seeker and leaving the outcome to God may God bless to us his word let's bow for a moment of prayer Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, give to us and to all your people grace and courage to proclaim your mighty work in Christ, in the crib and on the cross. Grant us a deeper understanding of people and their needs, that we may see them through the eyes of Christ. And help us, we pray, to be faithful witnesses to our Savior, whether that be across the street or across the world. Rekindle our zeal. Enlarge our vision. Increase our faith. And show each one of us what you would have us do in the service of your kingdom. To the glory of your name